Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Today, we're going to start the message with a little bit differently than I normally do. I don't normally put charts and graphs on the screen, but I'm going to put a chart on the screen because I think we need to ask ourselves some real questions about the reality behind the behaviors that this talks about in regard to our faith. Since 2009, what this graph shows is that American Christians have decreased uh, the the number of Americans in church on an average weekend has decreased by 24% since 2009. Now, this is a trend of decrease that's been going on much longer than that, but it's been very pronounced over that. So it's decreased, but during that same time, the people who call their church home and who claim to be followers of Christ has not decreased hardly at all. So what does that mean? It means that for whatever reason, many people who follow Jesus are finding it less compelling to be in church on a regular basis and attending less frequently. They're still as committed to their local church and pursuing their faith as they ever were, but they're not coming to church as often. This behavior elicits some really important questions that I think we need to actually consider. What's driving this decrease in prioritization of church and services and the importance of of them in our life and faith? What does it mean even maybe a more important question, was it, what does it mean to be a vibrant church and have a vibrant faith? To be a church whose focus and activity is so compelling enough that people will attend more regularly. Now, I got to tell you, over the past number of years, over the past 17 to 20 years, there have been probably more answers to the, these questions than at any time other in in American Christianity. And yet what we clearly see is that the answers being given by the church and being attempted by the church on the whole are not working because the trend isn't changing. So we're in the series called Like Jesus, and there are a lot of people who like Jesus. And even in Jesus' day, there's a lot of people who like Jesus, but there were few who actually followed him to become like him. And yet the amazing thing that we're trying to examine in this series is those very few who chose to become like Jesus went on to change the world. Even when nobody said they'd have a chance of having any kind of influence because of who they were. Today, as we continue to wrestle with this series of what it means to not just like Jesus, but to be like Jesus, we're going to examine uh, today from Jesus' perspective and from the perspective of how his immediate followers lived what I think is maybe one of the most important lessons, maybe the most important lesson in learning to be like Jesus. We're going to wrestle and look at what part of being like Jesus made the early church so compelling that people completely reoriented their lives around what God was doing through them as a church, resulting in the church exploding in growth and people wanting what they had, right? 
To ground our discussion today, we're going to go back to a passage that Jeremy referenced last week in John 20. And we see in this passage, it's this, it's this moment where Jesus does his first time appearing to the majority of the core of the group of his disciples after the resurrection. And he says this, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Here's what I want you to listen to. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you to actively become like me. And then he goes on and says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So this is an interesting text. The text says we are sent in the same way to do the same things Jesus was sent to do. And to do that, we have two powerful things that Jesus gives us to experience and to live out in our lives that are really important. And that is living in the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding that. And it's living in the power of forgiveness. And I got to be honest, as a church, if you've been around church at all, we get that, right? We get those two things. If you've been around church at all, those are two big things that the American church talks about on a regular basis. And the way we deliver those ideas, those messages, is typically through great preaching, great musical and artistic production of the message of God's power and forgiveness. My dad was a pastor for 50 years. He's now almost 84 years old. And at one time, uh, he was this up-and-coming star preacher in the denomination he was serving in in Minnesota. He was taking churches that weren't growing and turning them into growing churches, and he had, allowed, he had enough success that he was sitting on the most important boards of the denomination for all of Minnesota at the time. So imagine how thought-provoking it was for me uh, one of the last times I saw him when he, when he just all of a sudden looked at me out of the blue and said, Ross, I don't know how you do what you do. I don't think I could pastor effectively in today's world. I had someone tell me recently a fact. And this fact, you can study it, but there's lots of different reasons behind it, and it's not always as simple as it appears. But this fact was stating that the number one reason people choose a church or leave a church is over the preaching or how interesting and entertaining the main services are. And see, what my dad was saying to me as a person who in the prime of his generation was leading growing churches was he was saying, I don't think in today's world I could preach and lead services at the level of production necessary to succeed today. That's what he was telling me. See, the reality in our world today is we have better preaching, we have higher quality music, higher quality production than in any era of church history in what we do here on Sundays. And yet the actions of the American Christians are saying church is becoming less and less compelling to them. See, if we're honest, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Why is church less compelling to me, to my family, to my friends and neighbors here in Northeast Columbus? And I think the answers are found in our text where it says we are sent like Jesus is sent. We are to live and be like Jesus in the way we live. 
So let's begin looking at some of those answers that the text gives us. Uh, if, you want to, if you want to be like Jesus, each of us needs to learn to operate in the same power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to know and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, the text is saying. See, Jesus recognizes that if the disciples are sent like him, they need to be filled with the power he was filled with. The same power that guided his thinking, that guided his actions, that supplied the miraculous power and the miraculous wisdom that allowed him to do what he did. And so the text says Jesus breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. See, our faith must be more than words and principles and morality. It can only become a compelling faith for us when we know the very presence and power of God as real in our life, your life, my life. And we only know that through prayer, through learning to sense God's presence and how he communicates with us. For each of us to know how to pray for others and to speak to others in the power of the Holy Spirit, God wants every one of us to know how to operate in his power in those ways. And the second answer to the compelling faith of, uh, and church life is what Jesus says about forgiveness. And isn't that an amazingly powerful statement in that scripture? As his followers filled with his spirit, Jesus says, you have the power to forgive people. You can bring forgiveness to bear in your situations We have the power to do social justice, to do racial reconciliation, to do reconciliation of all types. In fact, that is the very core of the mission of who we are as a people who follow Jesus. But again, we know that, don't we? We hear it. We hear preaching on forgiveness on a regular basis. We hear stories of the Holy Spirit. We understand more about the Holy Spirit. We love hearing that. And the American church, again, primarily delivers these things through the preaching venues like we're in today. And yet, and yet we're still missing something. The church is still less compelling. It doesn't matter whether it's evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, vineyard, or any other brand of Christian church in America. Something is still missing. See, I think one of our faults as American Christians is we're so focused on words and knowledge and morals. So we easily limit our reading of the Bible to trying to glean principles. And and the Bible becomes almost the self-help book of easy steps to a great life that we want to glean from. But that leaves us too often reading the Bible only for the words and the principles. And we miss the picture of the way they lived. And we all know a picture is worth a thousand words, but yet we still miss it. We even miss it in the passage we just read this morning. When we look two verses earlier, it starts off introducing this section saying, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, Jesus came and stood among them. See, we gloss over these words like this word together. And we miss the movie, we miss the picture that's being painted right right before our eyes that is so important for us to see. The question, why are they together? Why are they together? Well, that's because that's what disciples of Jesus did. They lived together. Remember, we saw that in the first message of this series. If you wanted to be a disciple of someone, you what? You lived with them. 
because that was what a disciple did. And it wasn't just one disciple living with a master to try to learn to become like a master. It was a community of disciples doing life together, trying to make every aspect of their life like their master. You see, you can't be a disciple of Jesus by yourself. You can't become like Jesus by yourself. In an American world of individualism, we lack the power as churches because we don't get this piece of how we live life. Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And we see very clearly what that as looks like when we look at the church, the early church in Acts 2, as the disciples began to replicate what Jesus had taught them and how he had taught them to live. In verse 42, it says this. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying, enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. We're going to deal with a simple bottom line in today's message, and here it is. To be like Jesus means being a disciple is to rearrange your whole life. Not as an individual, but as a community. And here's what happens when we do that. When we start to do that kind of rearranging as a community in our life, we learn and grow. We learn God's word and grow because we see it being lived out in people all around us in very personal ways, in very real ways, watching people live life really well. I was listening to another pastor a couple of weeks ago, and I, I can't remember which one it was, and they were telling a story about friendship that I thought was really interesting. The person, this pastor said, have you ever noticed that when you meet people and you learn all the facts about them, where they were born, you know, what they do, you know, just some of that kind of stuff we do when we introduce ourselves to people, that you may often walk away from that conversation liking someone. But have you also noticed that you don't really trust someone? You don't feel like you really know them until they share openly their life with you, including where they're struggling and where they're wanting to grow. Have you ever noticed that? And here's the point. Growth happens in all of our lives because of trust. And trust does not happen in growth without community that is real enough where people feel safe enough to be open about sin, about failure, about weakness, knowing that they will be loved and supported even in the midst of that. Growth and change in life is never, ever found in a vacuum. We only grow in community with friendships in our lives. But we often treat our faith like an individual private thing with individual criteria. What am I getting out of this? Is my interest level staying high? But good and vibrant faith is not about you. It's about the community of friends and how we develop the priorities of our lives within those friendships around God's mission for us together. 
we see this power of friendship in so many ways. I wanted to share a story just so you can get to know him, but because they also have a powerful story. Chris and Amy Watson, uh, he's uh, our new children's minister. He's back in the back, so we videotaped him for you today to share about some of the journey they've been in their fa- through in their faith and how relationship really became such a priority for them. Would you take a moment and listen to the screens? Hi, we're Chris and Amy Watson. We're excited to be the new children's ministry directors here. Uh, We just want to share with you a little bit of our story of what brought us here and um, just the church and how they've rallied around us to get us to this point, both through hospitalizations, through financial difficulties, as well as a lot of loss in the family in a very condensed point of time. I started having some neurological issues. I started having some really bad headaches that went down my spine. Um, and also having some tremors, and they really turned out to be pretty debilitating. Uh, After about a month of them progressively getting worse, we spent some time on the the neuro, the stroke floor um, over at Riverside. At that time, I was about 25 to 26 weeks pregnant. Mm -hmm. So by the time Chris was able to be discharged and start back with work, we noticed that that stressful time kind of started the uh, preterm labor for me. And um, I, was, I had to step down from my full-time job at the time and stop coaching. So it put a lot of pressure on Chris to kind of run our national team while I was on bed rest. About 37 weeks, we got the clear that I was good to go. Yeah. So um, I remember being really excited. And then within a couple hours, I started feeling a lot of swelling in my feet, just getting up and walking around. I ended up falling down the stairs. And from that fall... There was some serious complications in the neurological area of my spine. And within a week, I was unable to walk and use both of my legs. Their hope was that if they induced labor, that I would gain full function of my legs back. Um, We had a pretty traumatic labor with Peyton, but he turned out beautiful and big. After that fedora wore, wore off, I lost function in my left leg and had extreme nerve damage there. Um, we were discharged home with a locker. We've had a couple people ask us, you know, how did you get through those times? We really started to pray together as a couple, and it was transforming for us. Um, Mm -hmm. After talking to my regular doctor, she told me that the likelihood of me being able to run again was slim, and that was devastating for me. Mm -hmm. I'm a runner, and I love half marathons. But I just felt like the Lord said he was going to heal me, and I trusted that. I um, found out during that time I was pregnant with Eliana, and that that delivery and normal pregnancy was just, it was phenomenal. It was great. I felt like the Lord was healing me even during that time. We had her at Dublin Hospital, and I felt healed after four weeks. I asked my OB, I'm like, can I go for a run? She said, I think that's fine. You can go for a run if you feel good. And I will never forget being able to go for a run and feeling good, feeling fine. During that time, my mom's health was declining. That summer, she was diagnosed with ALS. In December, uh, she had a surgery. The surgery didn't go that well. We decided we were going to try and transition back closer to our family. 
um, in Worthington and um, in February of 15, unfortunately, uh, my mom passed away. During that, I felt God saying it was our season of rest, and it was a season of rest for a while. Um, we had family friends that had lived next to Chris's parents for a long time that said that they were moving to Hilton Head Island and said, why don't you guys move right next door to your dad? We also felt during that time just the body of Christ come around us. So after we moved, we found out we were pregnant with Micah and everything seemed to be, you know, going okay. By the third trimester, I was having some significant issues and I was having a hard time sleeping and we found out that I had a sudden onset of preeclampsia. At 35 weeks, we delivered Micah, and I was admitted for six days, and Micah was in the NICU for eight. Yeah, and it was, it was a tough time. During the day, I would have the kids, and I would either have them at the house or I would have them at the hospital. Um, and during the nights, I would actually take the kids home, put them to bed, and my dad would actually go pull the night shift and sleep over there with them. Um, and then I would come back to the hospital, be there, be dad to Micah, and be, be there for Amy. Um, it, it really taught us to lean on each other just that much more. We started to come out of that, you know. Micah started to really go, start getting better. Um, he was growing. Amy was, Amy's uh, blood pressure went down and things were going well there. And so we felt like, okay, I think it's time. I think it's time to start looking at full-time ministry. We feel like God's calling us into full-time ministry. And so we were looking. We actually were in the final interview with the church in Florida, and uh, we went out to dinner with my dad, and we were talking to him about it. The thing I'll always remember um, is that he said, if you get the opportunity to go serve God, I want you to run towards it. Um, Unfortunately, that was the last conversation that I ever had with him. A week later, um, we were going to check on him. We hadn't heard from him in 24 to 48 hours. And he, was get, he, was, he went to all of Peyton's soccer games, and he was getting ready to go to the soccer game. Um, and I went and I checked on him because we hadn't heard him. And uh, I, I found him passed away from a, uh, a heart attack. Um, during that time, again... The same friends and family were there. They were a constant support. They never stopped. It was a quick, you know, 15 months to lose both both of the parents, you know. They were fantastic grandparents. They were there for us constantly. Um, but we knew that God still had a plan, and we, we felt God's presence even more clearly to us. Mm-hmm. And we felt the love of Jesus through our friends that just remained there. Part of what led us to Quest was those great relationships that we've forged with those families and realizing how vital it is to an important and pivotal relationship with Christ. You have an amazing story, a deep story of persevering and actually finding a good God in, a, in, in difficult circumstances. And not only do they have a lot of good qualifications for the job as far as the teaching side of it, but they have a deep, deep faith and a deep commitment to relationship. It is so important to all of our lives. We are so grateful for the way God prepared them uh, to be part of who we are. A compelling faith, a compelling church experience can only be found with a solid relational network of friends because being a disciple is to rearrange your whole life, not as individuals, but as a community.
See, when we get our primary focus on things like preaching and music and the entertainment value of what church is, we miss out. Faith becomes primarily about knowledge and morality and not about relationships. And it becomes prone to being less compelling. The second thing that happens when we rearrange our whole life around community above the individual is we also learn how the Holy Spirit works. Because learning how the Holy Spirit works is not something we learn as an individual primarily, often a corner by ourselves. We learn about the Holy Spirit only as we pray together with friends, as we seek God together with friends, as we worship him together with friends. It's in community that we most strongly experience and learn how the Holy Spirit works among us. I got to be honest, I can't remember a single time in my 54 years where I've experienced or seen a healing of God by myself or with just an individual by themselves, whether it was emotional or physical healing. And I've seen a lot of healings, but I've never seen them happen alone. Not saying they haven't. Every healing miracle moment I've known happens from being together, praying together, doing life together with people. I've experienced God speak to me individually, but, but I can also tell you that the most profound experiences of God speaking and confirming things in my life have always come in settings where I'm praying together with other people, where God's spirit works through, speaks through someone else in a moment to me. I mean, think about it even just theologically. The Bible talks about the fruit of the spirit, right? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those are almost exclusively seen in relationships, in community, aren't they? Even think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prophecy, word of wisdom, uh, word of knowledge, healing, miracles. All these things are primarily seen in ministry to one another when we are in community. See, when we keep our faith private as an individual thing, we don't learn. We don't learn how to open up and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't learn to be to one another, how to be to one another in prayer and word and deed, God's hands and feet. And, and we miss the very core of what Jesus says to us, even in the initial verse we read, as he says, I want you to be sent as I am sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we miss that, we have no real compelling reason for church and faith left other than personal preferences, are we entertained, and what makes me feel good and gives me a feel-good fix if I show up for something. See, when you look at a powerful, compelling church in Acts, one that would attract people even to a church that they knew if they joined, they were going to be persecuted if they joined them. It was all about the community. People were drawn to the apostles' teaching because of the power of the community. People were in awe, not just of the miracles that Jesus did or the apostles did, but people flocked, and people did flock to him for those miracles. But what they were most strongly attacked, attracted to was the depth of love and the forgiveness and the security that that kind of love and forgiveness together brought to their life. That radical, generous love that took care of all the needs that were around them so that no one had need, the text says. See, even the miracles the apostles did were fueled by the prayer of the people daily having community engagement with the Holy Spirit. I mean, 
The great miracles of the apostles weren't done in some sort of super spiritual vacuum of one great person. It was a community as a whole engaging the Holy Spirit and praying and inviting and caring and loving. But there's more. The third thing that happens when we rely on ourselves to follow Jesus as a community of friends is we experience the power and healing of forgiveness. Because forgiveness, again, is a relational thing. It's a community thing, isn't it? That can only be deeply experienced when we experience it in a community, not as an individual. I had the privilege of recently glimpsing some really, really powerful examples of this, and and it's going to be kind of some raw sharing, but I want you to know I have permission to share with you what I'm about to say. Many of you know David Kress passed away a couple weeks ago, and I had the privilege of helping lead David to faith and baptize him in 2010 here at Quest. What many of you may not know about David's life is that he had a pretty rough background uh, uh, with many of his growing up relationships. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but there were a number of really, really significant people in his growing up years who never said, I love you, never told him they believed in him his whole life, and there was a lot of personal rejection and pain in David's life. And yet God worked in him. David began over these past few years to see that God wanted him to grow and to forgive, even in the face of continued painful, conflicted relationships. So David made a a special determination these last few months that every time he would see anyone, he would ask them forgiveness for anything he could remember that he had done to contribute to any difficulty in that relationship. I was talking with Christina's wife the last time I saw them at the hospital before David's passing. We talked for a while out in the hall. And she told me there was one person in particular who had always been demeaning of David, never hugged him, never said they loved him, was always putting him down, and who had recently said, uh, if he were to die, I would dance on his grave. That kind of a relationship. David got some time alone with this person. And without asking this person to repent of their sin toward him, David asked forgiveness for the ways he had treated this person and hated them. And he looked at him after that and said, I love you. And he stood up in all of his weakness and gave him a great big hug, reaffirming to him that he loved him. The person he was hugging and saying this to wasn't even able to respond. They didn't respond verbally. They weren't even able to respond by giving him a hug back when he was hugging him. And yet David and Christine continued both every time they saw this person to say, I love you to this other person, even though they were never able, even with all those times, to say anything back to them. In fact, increasingly with each visit, this person would avoid actually trying to go into the room with David and instead would stand out in the hall. And when David was still strong enough, he would get out of the bed and he would walk out to the hallway and say, I love you and give them a hug again. David's motivation in doing this was to express to this person the same love he'd experienced because of Jesus being in his life. And Christine said, you know, even though the other person never was able to reciprocate, their hearts started to soften. When they were in the room with David and David said, I love you, they would sit off in the corner by themselves and they would begin to weep. And they said they had never, ever seen this person weep in their entire life. See, the truth of it for all of us is we all want to be loved. And because we all know we sin, we all fail, we all fall short way too often, there's a deep longing in each and every one of us to be forgiven. 
and to be loved in spite of our wrongdoing, in spite of our failures. And Jesus does that kind of love for us and dying for us on the cross and offering us forgiveness. But the way we most deeply experience that love of Jesus is not just through abstract reading of the Bible and knowing that message. We experience that love and that forgiveness in very personal sense in community. You and I being sent as Jesus was sent. See, God's spirit through others around you giving you that forgiveness and that love is how you actually really experience even God that way. See, when you make church primarily about how interesting the preaching is and the music or the production, you leave when you're bored. And with the level of entertainment we're all used to in all areas of our lives, there are a lot of really good things that we easily get bored at and leave good things on the table because we are so overexposed to entertainment in our world today. But when you live life as a disciple, wanting to be like Jesus, you stay in relationship. You remain faithful through difficult times, through boring times, through frustrating times, through sinful times, and through sad times because you realize that the power of giving and receiving forgiveness and grace and love is the only thing that can be compelling enough to show up at church regularly. Because if you don't show up, you don't develop the depth of friendships because friendship requires regularity of contact, right? See, the real compelling part of church at Quest is not whether I can be interesting enough, and thank God, certainly not dependent on my sense of humor and ability to tell a joke, because I still struggle with that one, right? You know that. And it's not dependent on whether Zach and the team play well enough. The only thing that can make Quest compelling and your faith compelling is the experience of love that you give and receive as you walk in forgiveness toward one another and those you interact with outside this church. See, I was actually wondering this past week if David and Christine forgiving and loving this one person could bring them to tears when they had never cried in front of anyone for the 40 years that they knew him and soften this person's heart that much. I was wondering this past week, what would happen? How much more could they be transformed if they'd experienced that same kind of love and forgiveness from 10 people or from 50 people or from seeing it in an entire community of the people who make up Quest. Jesus says, you have the power to forgive. He lists that power right up there with the power of the Holy Spirit, that same power that enabled his resurrection and salvation and healing miracles. We as a community, by living that kind of radically pursuing love and forgiveness like David, can bring so much salvation and healing to our community, dare I say, even our state or our nation. But it requires how we view pain to change. Remember all the times Jesus says, Rejoice when you're persecuted or you're maligned or you're beaten or you're mistreated in any way. Remember all those times? Jesus says it a lot. Why do you think he says that? Well, I think at least part of the answer is because of the power of the Holy Spirit through forgiveness to radically reach, heal, and change people's lives. I was having a devotional time this last week while I was waiting for Jared to finish his, his guitar lesson. 
And my Bible reading program had me in Amos 5. Uh, Amos is an Old Testament prophet. And this verse flew off the page as, as Amos is exhorting the people of Israel to seek forgiveness. He says this. He says, seek the Lord and live. And then, and then he talks about a couple ways that the Israelites need to be, come to uh, repentance and forgiveness. But then he flips it on them. In the ne- very next verse, he says, he says this. He says, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. In our world today, even in the Christian church, too much of the pursuit of social justice is laced with bitterness. And the result is we cast to the ground any kind of righteousness. Instead of compassionate restraint and pursuing justice, forgiving compassionate restraint, we rush to judgment and riots and anger and accusations fly even before all the facts are understood. We've seen it on Facebook. We've seen it in the political demonstrations. We've seen it in the race riots of the last couple years in our country. Bitterness that, like in David Cress's life, caused people who should have been there for each other to instead fight and leave and not show up and keep unhealthy cycles of pain going for decades. You see, it is the power of forgiveness and only the power of forgiveness that can dispel bitterness and bring healing and the love that comes out of that which can solve the political and relational divides that our country faces right now and our families face right now. See, we, the church, if we stop being individualistic and demanding of our own rights and our own needs for justice, if we stop expressing our sarcastic bitterness from being offended by culture or inconvenienced by things that are going on, we can become the most powerful force for good on earth by learning to walk in the power of forgiveness God gives us to walk into, the kind that melts even the hardest of hearts and situations like David's situation showed me and reminded me of. And that can't be done as individuals, but it's something that needs to be seen It needs to become the hallmark of who we are together as a community. It needs to be the first and most prominent thing people see and talk about when they think Quest Vineyard Church. They need to think forgiving people, amazingly forgiving people. See, David Kress didn't have to preach the gospel to this person at all. He just had to get up and forgive and say, I love you constantly and give him hugs. And a heart of stone began to melt. See, when the way we love one another becomes the primary thing that people in our community talk about, we too, as a church, will see God do miracles and we will grow daily with people being saved. People you never you and I never thought could change, will come to faith in Jesus. People so caught up in addiction and greed when they are experienced the power of forgiveness that Jesus gives you to give them, they will come to Jesus and change and beg to be part of our community of faith. A church and church will be compelling regardless of the level of entertainment value that we're able to produce each week. I was sitting and talking with a group of teens and 20-somethings not long ago. And the conversation switched over the topic of church and, and their response is, we're so turned off by the lights and the big production. We just, we just can't stand that. And so someone in the group was smart enough to ask the obvious question. It wasn't me, it was somebody else was smart. They asked the question, 
well, what do you want from church then? And the resounding answer was, we want honest talk. We want genuine worship. We want relationships that love each other deeply. And we want to radically serve others because of that love. That's what they want. Quest, I got to tell you, we're well on our way to becoming this. We have higher levels of friendship and commitment to one another than any church I've been a part of in the past. When someone goes through a difficult time like David or any number of people in your small groups this last year or the people who are being cared for through Quest Care, I am so blessed at how wonderfully and sacrificially we step up as a church and care and love for people. But there is more. There is much more God is inviting us to if we're going to not just like him but become like him. He has sent us. He sent you. He sent me. He sent each one of us, every one of us, just as God sent Jesus. He sends you together to display the power of the Holy Spirit and to bring forgiveness into light, into full living color before people in the relationships that we have with each other and with the world around us. You see, Have you ever thought about this? When you study the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, isn't it interesting that Jesus drew crowds? I mean, he drew really large crowds, especially for his day. And Jesus could have, over the three years of his public ministry, focused his time on mobilizing those crowds. But Jesus put absolutely no effort toward mobilizing the crowds. In fact, we see multiple times in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus getting really large crowds, probably in excess of 25,000 people, and then he jumps on a boat and leaves and goes somewhere else. No effort to mobilize the crowd. Why is that? Why is that? It's because Jesus knew the only way to change the world in a lasting way, the only way to have compelling faith, the only way to have compelling church life is for him to spend three years investing in a few disciples, teaching them the power of the community over the individual, teaching them that trust and faith and hope and forgiveness and love can only be experienced in radical community. And the power of the Holy Spirit can only be fully realized and experienced in, po- in the power of radical community. Because becoming a disciple, becoming like Jesus, means rearranging your whole life, not as individuals, but as a community around the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit and around the power of living out forgiveness in visible ways in relationship with others. For too long, our focus has been on the speaking and the music to draw large crowds, but that isn't clearly cutting it, is it? Even at the high levels of quality and production that are far greater than any other generation in church history has had, it's not cutting it. But what if we discover the power of being like Jesus and being like the early church? that the way we relate to one another is such a beautiful picture of community filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with a love that can't be found anywhere else, that people start beating the doors down wanting to be here. See, this is the kind of community that Jesus' disciples learned from him. That's the kind of community he sent them to, and it's the kind of community he sends you and I to live in. But it's going to require that we continue to grow and change. So the question is, 
What step will, take, will you take this week toward becoming more like that radical community in your own life? For some of you, that step may be, do you have the opportunity to forgive someone this week? Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive and step and reach out to? Do you need to learn maybe this week to pray and understand the Holy Spirit better by praying with others, even though it's really uncomfortable, but by learning to do that? Do you need to be open to getting closer to people around you and just open up and share some things at a level you've never been willing to share with? What's the one thing you can do this week for you to take another step toward this kind of community? See, this whole series has been about will we like Jesus or will we be like Jesus? And this whole message we've talked about today as we, as we close by celebrating communion is, is really all wrapped up in this whole communion thing for us. Because as Jesus was sitting on the last night before the cross, mere hours away from being arrested, they were eating together. They were doing life together. And Jesus broke the bread and he said, here, eat this. This is my body symbolizing your commitment to live your life like me, to become like me. And he dipped that bread in the, in the wine and he talked about the spilling of his blood and that, that he would bring perfect forgiveness and that, that that would be an offer that could be accepted by anyone who would accept it and be willing to become like him. And what was so radical about that moment is that Jesus offered that same bread and that same cup to Judas, the one who was going to betray him, communicating that my forgiveness is offered even to you, the one betraying me, if you will receive it. See, the one thing I didn't say from the scripture, the scripture says you have the power to forgive and those you forgive will be forgiven those you do not forgive will not be forgiven. Question. Who did Jesus not offer forgiveness to? No one. See, this is the choice we have. We can choose to be like him and offer forgiveness and be the most powerful force for good in the earth or we can choose our bitterness and withholding forgiveness and not being like him. That's the invitation of communion. Will you choose to be that person? Will you choose to be like me? Will you choose to not just receive the forgiveness, but will you choose to give that to everyone you meet? So come on, let's stand. We're going to worship and we're going to receive communion as we continue to worship. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcasts, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.